Hey, this is Mike Patterson, your host for Embrace Growth. This is a podcast dedicated to personal growth and empowered choices. Helping to create change and transformation in your life and the world. Today on the podcast, I speak with Dr. Alexandra Solomon from Northwestern University. Dr. Solomon and I have a great conversation about what it's like to be dating in the modern age. All of the dating websites, everything that we have to think about, and especially just how pervasive gender is still in the conversation. There's so many unwritten rules. I don't know that we solve it, but it's definitely worth listening to. Stick around. Hey, Alexandra, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Everybody, today, I am speaking with Dr. Alexandra Solomon from Northwestern University. Go ahead, Dr. Solomon, introduce yourself and tell the people a little bit about you. Sure. So uh, I think of my work as being sort of a triangle. So I'm a therapist, a teacher, and a translator. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and part of my week is spent doing therapy with individuals and couples. And another part of my week is spent teaching. So I'm um, on faculty at Northwestern. I, for 10 years, taught graduate students how to do couples therapy. And for 20 years, I have been teaching Um, a pretty well-known undergraduate course at Northwestern called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. And I also do a lot of trainings with um, therapists on all things love, sex, dating. And then the third corner of the triangle is translation. So I, my whole career, I've been really interested in, you know, exporting knowledge out of the ivory tower into the hands of um, consumers and users, the general public, regular, real people, and uh, also clinical wisdom. So understanding what happens behind a therapist's door and making all of that really high quality, emotional, mental, relational, sexual health content accessible. So I write relationship self-help books. I'm really active on social media. And I have conversations like this one that we're about to have that I, um, I love. I think of myself as a woman on a bridge, like making sure that, you know, people have what they need to make loving choices for their lives. Nice. Thank you. And welcome to the show. This is, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. So as a single man, middle-aged man talking about dating in the modern age, that's what we're discussing today. And I know that even though I do a lot of work in men's organizations all over the world, a lot of my listeners to this show are women. And I believe that that's because women want to do more work on themselves than men. Men are resistant in my experience. Mm -hmm. And so I really am, am just looking forward to this conversation for my own benefit, as well as allowing a lot of my listeners to get to know you better. So dating in the modern age, let's spell out kind of what the problem with that is. (laughs) What do you see with problems of dating in the modern age? Let's start with that. 
Well, I tell you what, Mike, you just named one of the huge ones, which is this massive inequality around who is accessing content like this conversation, who is reading books like my books, who, you know, who's following the work that you do. And it is, um, you know, it breaks my heart that, um, you know, my, I look at my Instagram following, it's 88% women. There is no rational, logical reason. The content that I, that I create every single day is for people of all genders, of all relationship stages. Um, this is the work, I mean, as you know, as well as anybody knows, this is the work, right? Understanding who we are, how the past shapes, the ways in which we show up for love, for sex, for work, you know, for all of it. But that self-reflection work, that introspection, that emotion, heart, soul work, we basically, I think we as a culture, we shame our boys out of it when they're very young and then we get mad at them when they won't do it. You know, it's like uh, part of the patriarchal socialization of boys and men is like a sort of F your feelings. Feelings are weakness. Um, you know, man up, don't cry. And then we wonder why it's so, why, um, you know, women are craving more emotional connectedness from their male partners. <laughs> yes, I agree with everything that you're saying. And then I experience the other side of that. So as a man who has done decades worth of work and self-understanding, allowing myself to be vulnerable, courageous, I use those words interconnectedly in relationship, I think that it scares the hell out of a lot of women to see a man that actually goes there. So what's your take on that? I agree a hundred percent. Women are the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. <laughs> I mean, I think that women, you know, I see it among my, my kids are now teenagers, 16, 16 and 18. But, um, but I know when they were, I know that the, conver I remember the conversations that I would have with other moms when our, you know, when our boys were little boys and there is a lot of kind of like cultural narrative around being afraid of raising a mama's boy and being afraid of a boy's soft heart or tender heart. So I think that women completely do participate. I think women participate in um, reinforcing the idea of like wanting strength in men and then also feeling really lonely. I think women basically, I'm trying, women are, I think, ambivalent about what do, what is healthy masculinity? I don't think any of us have that figured out. Like, what are the masculinities? that we want to celebrate and affirm and reinforce. And so, right, to love a man with a big, soft, open heart can be really confronting because he may not look anything like the men that she grew up with, her father, her grandfather, her uncles. And so it may, it may really confront her notion of what is a man, what is masculinity, what do I, if I have a man with a big, soft, open heart, what, what then do I step into? Who do I need to be if I'm not? the one who's knocking on his door, right? What do I do, do with a man who's like knocking on my door and wanting me to go deeper into myself? I think that it really, um, saying we want something and then actually knowing what the hell to do with it when we get it are two different things. Yes. Agreed that both sides of the relationship, and this is whether it's homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual relationships, both sides need to do their work and allow themselves to what, I guess, have the conversation, be vulnerable. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, it is. It, and I think that, you know, I think we, I think we're going directly to, right. I think that we can, we can start to slip into really easily talking about a heterosexual script around this stuff, because I do think that there are ways in which heterosexuality brings these dynamics so to the foreground. Um, when two men are partnered together, when two women are partnered together, when people are, are partnered together who occupy a space beyond a gender binary, by very nature of their love, they are they are outside of this like patriarchally reinforced heterosexual dynamic, right? So there's a bit of liberation, there's a bit of freedom, there's a bit more flexibility. The research shows that queer couples across the board have higher communication, more equity, more like fluidity in roles, fewer disputes about child raising and domestic labor because because you don't when you have a straight couple a male body and a female body together you it's just so easy to map on those roles that are thousands of years old right where she says you should be x and he says yeah you should be y you know like we have these ideas these notions that are like archetypal basically about what a good husband a good male partner is what a good wife a good female partner is Mm. Okay. So the heteronormative <laughs> couple is the problem, right? <laughs> yes. Good. Check. <laughs> I'm just curious, like how do, I know we're pushing a, a big stone up the hill here, but how do we begin to break this down other than, and, and what sucks is the people that are listening to the show right off the bat are people wanting and well, hopefully wanting to do some personal growth work. I just don't know how to how to solve the problem or if we if in our lifetime we it's even possible. What would be some beginning steps? Okay. Well, and I want I would love to hear I would love to hear from you especially as somebody who is single and navigating this in a, you know in a um different way. I'm you know, I'm um so I think that one of the, so I'm not in the dating scene. I've been married to the same, same Todd, not, not, not our mutual friend Todd, but the same Todd Solomon for going on 23 years. So my, all of my exposure to folks in the dating world is through my clients, my students, my friends. Um, and I'm a, um, you know, I want to be in the trenches understanding certainly how this goes in the dating world. And there are ways in which what's happening in the dating world mirrors and parallels what's happening to people in relationships, you know, obviously. Um, I think, what, you know, I think that part of it is like naming, st starting to get savvy and clever and aware of how gender role scripts block intimacy, and it starts, it's as subtle, it's as subtle as who asks whom out for a date, right? So um, I, I was presenting last year, this is on, on campus at Northwestern, I was presenting to a room full of women engineers. So these are Northwestern women engineer undergraduates. So they're young, but they are, they are already in some ways busting through gender role socialization by studying engineering, by entering the STEM field, right? And our conversation was basically about how do I let a guy know that I like him? Like, how do I, how do I get a guy to ask me out? Right. That, the, that was the question. Like, how do I get someone to nowhere in the, like, I had to introduce the idea that if you liked a guy, what if you asked him out? What if you took the first step? And it was really 
confronting. Of course, right? Of course it's confronting because that's not how the script goes. But my sense is that men are freaking sick of having to take the lead every step of the way. And, um, and that women are freaking sick of having to figure out how to be passive enough to be chosen. Like it's just, so I think it's really subtle around, I think we see it. The dating scripts are such a, an, a wonderful place to kind of start to deconstruct or unpack this stuff, right? So I love the idea of women saying, hey, like I'm interested in you. You know, do you want to go out? Um, rather than waiting around, dropping hints, you know, all this sort of like, who are we to each other? I, I want him to say who we are to each other. With You know, that's all of this passive messaging that we've internalized that to be a woman who declares is is to run the risk of being perceived as too much by a man. Mm. And I think for, you know, all of the research around like um, what makes for really wonderful heterosexual sex is when men are willing to like let go a bit of that leadership role in the bedroom, right? And be a student of their female partner and for women to become a bit more or authoritative in the bedroom, right? And be able to like declare and ask for what they want and know their own bodies. But there's, these are all the things that we have to kind of start to get out of. So, um, I mean, I just introduced the idea of sex because all of this stuff plays out times a thousand around sexual scripts. And we can go there if you want. Yes, I want to go there. I also want to, you know, kind of put myself on the couch here and, you know, I'm not afraid to do some work. One of the biggest hurdles that I have is, yes, I agree with how gender blocks intimacy. In For me, once I'm in a relationship, then I can have those conversations and begin to break that down. And hopefully that will resonate because I don't necessarily want to be in a relationship with somebody that's not willing to do their own personal work and have the hard conversations. For me, the difficult thing is the damn internet dating and how, how difficult that is to navigate. So I'm will yes, I want to have the conversation about sexual intimacy and how there's gender roles that really get in the way in the bedroom. But I'm also curious, while I have you here, what do you know about internet dating, the lack of connection that exists there, the social media influence on that, and is there anything you have for me personally, how to navigate this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hear, yes. I hear what you're saying because you, because you're right that like there, you know, we can't, we can't start like peeling back the layers and understand and talking about all of this stuff, you know, screen to screen. Well, you know, in that format, right. It takes, it, it requires time to start to unfold and unpack this. I think a really clever invention on a dating app would be for a dating app to start to include like, like a slider, almost like a sliding bar of like for, for heterosexual couples. And it would look different for queer couples, but I think there are elements that may be similar, but like a sliding bar where basically one end is I freaking love traditional dating scripts. Like I want you, I want you guy holding the door 
you know, paying the bill, taking the lead. I love that. And then the other side of the bar would be like, F the scripts. Like if you hold the door for me, it's going to be a huge turnoff. Let me take the lead. Don't even think it is a question about who's going to pay the tab. And just a slider, right? Like where are you on that spectrum? Because I suspect that we are, that people who are dating are constantly misperceiving each other's intentions around some of that stuff because it's so sneaky and it's so subtle. And I hear stories about women, you know, who are like, I can't believe this guy did this. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know that the guy did that because it's his deep, authentic truth, or that's who he thinks he has to be in order to play the part and be like a good guy. The thing that I know so much is that guys are, in this dating world, men are profoundly afraid of coming across as creepy, of um, having anything that that feels like a boundary violation of any sort, um, and and there's a deep fear of, of misperceiving. And I think that women are incredibly heightened around wanting their boundaries to be understood, of course, like, of course. Um, and that there's, and that there's just opportunities for, uh, for us to be misperceiving each other rather than sort of saying out loud, here's what I'm wanting and needing. And here's what's going to work best for me. Yeah. Yeah. Boundaries are a big one. For me, I I definitely understand what you're saying and when to even bring that up. That's not something that comes out necessarily on the first date. And at the same time, it needs to be upfront and discussed. What are the boundaries? What things? So, yeah, I like what you're saying about the slide on the on the dating app because I'm very non-traditional. I've had feedback from, I'll call it ex-partners that were saying, well, when were you going to make a move? And I was like, I was making moves. Mm-hmm. It's, I hear what you're saying. And without those conversations, who's to know? That's right. That's right. And it's all, you know, you were starting to name like the sort of uh, anonymity or this like low empathy vibe that dating apps often have, right? I think which is part of the problem is that we're trying to do these incredibly complicated, intimate dances in a format that is screen to screen and that um, where there's, I, I think that there are ways in which, I mean, I'm not like anti-dating app. I understand that this is, this is, um, this is a technology. This is, you know, it's normative. It's common, like more relationships than not, especially midlife relationships, dating again, people, queer people, like it's the vast majority of the ways that people are finding each other. So we don't need to be anti-dating app, but, but we can also be savvy about the need to use the technology. Like the technology is to be used as a way of getting from point A to point B, which is, you know, point A is like the initial connection bringing two people connection meaning that like we found each other that's point a and then point b is our socially distant walk or meeting up for a beer or whatever it is because the relationship can't be we can't we can't build a relationship screen to screen or like you know on the app but there's so much I know that it's, I know there's a risk of people becoming cynical on the apps and feeling like they are just kind of a commodity. They're being judged. They are judging. It doesn't really feel good to be judging. It certainly does not feel good to be judged. So I know that that whole, the whole format evokes strong feelings. And I want people just to remember and, and try to be, um, kind of determined that the, that the app is just a means to an end. 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying because the idea that four, four photos in a paragraph is going to sum up who I am and what I'm looking for. And then the other side of it is, yeah, how judgmental am I looking at your four photos in your paragraph? I think that that's what I that's that's what I hate about the damn app is once I have a decent conversation over the phone or video chat or whatever then it's like okay we can kind of feel some chemistry the problem I'm having is just getting to that point based on what's available on the app because once I had a phone date earlier this week and I realized on the phone, okay, this, how did I even get on the phone with this person? <laughs> right? Like what people are putting out there. It's, and, and that's, that's the product of social media, right? I want you to think that I'm this person and the idea of not being authentic, like your partner's not going to find out is insane. That's right. That's right. It really does require um, a deep sense of one's own self in order to create a profile that is in any way, shape, or form a, resp- re- um, a reflection of the authentic self, right? I have to know my authentic self in order to figure out how I'm going to represent my authentic self on this app. But by the way, I really don't want to put my full authentic self on the app because you need to earn a right to my story, right? I can't I'm not going to just put it all out there without knowing you, without having like a framing together of, um, so, so that's like, that's the tension, right. Of how to have enough authenticity that, that we are ruling out people that we would not be a good fit for. And, but not so much authenticity that if we feel really vulnerable and that we've put our, uh, you know, put all our cards on the table in a space that hasn't been deemed safe yet. Yeah, exactly. And, as a student of Brene Brown, like I love that you said, earned the right to hear my story. And yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's going to take some time before somebody earns that right. So not only does it not make it to the app, but the interesting thing is once the dating actually takes place, when do those types of conversations show up? And I love diving in deep. I want to get to know somebody because as a middle-aged man, I'm tired of wasting my time. I'm not looking to date. I'm looking for a long-term relationship. I know that that also, or at least in my experience, it puts off a lot of women when a man asks personal questions right out of the gate. I don't know if you got a take on that or can offer me some insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to make sure, though, that I also say I really like that you went. It sounds like you went pretty quickly to a phone date because I think that there's um, that's a really lovely transition, like from messaging to a phone date to something that's more in person. Although I know obviously in person is really fraught right now mm-hmm. in the time of COVID, but um, but I think that there is so much so much more of a person comes forward on the phone, and you can and it's much easier to tell voice to voice, like in real time how good a fit we are for each other, certainly much easier than message to message, right? Whenever we're in that like asynchronous communication, like message to message, there's just way, way, way too much space for rumination and like posturing and, you know, writing and rewriting. So I think that that, I think a phone call, like a pretty quick transition to a phone call makes good sense for people who are 
dating who are certainly wanting to, um, you know, who are dating in the service of a relationship, which is not always necessarily how we're dating. But if you're clear that you're dating in the service of a relationship, getting to a phone call pretty quickly makes good sense. I think that you can do a lot more kind of um, feeling like that sort of intuitive, organic felt sense of how we would be together is much easier to discern over a phone. Yeah, absolutely. And in my profile, it lets people know I'm looking for a long-term relationship. I was speaking with some other friends of mine, some women that also have this hate relationship with the dating apps. But what I've, <laughs> what I've realized though, is that the inequality of gender takes place in the sense that the women that I've talked to, there's all kinds of guys that are hitting them up on the regular. And for me as a man, it's like, okay, I have to make all of these moves to get a conversation going over messaging. The other thing that I've, yeah. and, and, and maybe you have a lot more research than I do, is that there's the dopamine factor, right? There's the, oh, all of these people are interested. And so my experience is women like to continue this texting back and forth thing on the app. And it takes me a bit just to get them on the phone. Like, can we stop the nonsense and have a phone date? Right. So what, what's your experience or research on, on the messaging? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting to, to be, uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about sort of like what it means to be engaged in this process, like in, in midlife, because I do think part of what may be keeping women having like lots of um, open conversations is like the dopamine hit, but it also may really be a fear of opening up that may be a fear that comes from a history of getting hurt, right? Like, so, so it may feel safer to have five little, you know, like one inch deep conversations going because there's not a lot of vulnerability in those conversations. And there's my attention is sort of spread thin. There's not a ton of demand for intimacy, um, emotional or sexual intimacy, but I can sort of have my bucket filled a little bit around feeling connected, feeling desired, feeling wanted. And especially for women who are newly out of a long-term marriage or newly out of a long-term relationship. And especially, especially women who are newly out of a long-term relationship or a marriage and feel like they have, and have, have been, have, have been hurt, right? Where they are in their own process of healing and integrating to open up to a new man is freaking scary. And so, and so I suspect Mike, that there are times when you are sort of caught up in that, right? You are a part of a woman's like story of healing and recovery. And she, she's not opening to you, not because of anything about you, but because of her ambivalence about opening herself to a, to a man again. Okay. So that's, that's some really great insight for me right there is to just to have the understanding one of, yeah, what is the experience, but two, just, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman on the planet and, and I get that there's maybe some stuff in there, even if there wasn't a long abusive experience that, that was going on. And, and I'm, I'm kind of like, Hey, I'm putting it all out there. How come I'm not getting the same in return? So yeah, that's, that's some great insight. Thanks. 
<sighs> Let me ask you one more thing about that. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm also thinking about, and tell me if this makes any sense or if it resonates at all for you. I, when I hear you say like that, you are that you're you are clear in your paragraph. Like I'm open for a long term relationship. What I hear is that what you are trying to say is like I listen. I'm not a player. I'm not effing around. I am. Um, I, I'm really. I'm grounded. I'm here. I'm open. What I what I I wonder if there are ways that at times that message gets lost in translation and what it feels like to the woman on the receiving end who's reading your profile is like oh god it's pressure and I'm not saying that it has anything to do with you because I I have every sense that your intention is to is to indicate uh safety authenticity and integrity but I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. um I'm wondering if there are times when it comes across the bow to the woman who's holding her phone looking at that if it's like oh my god he's available for a relationship like that's something I don't know. I don't know whether, when, and how I step into that, or if I'm if I'm available for that. And so there may be ways, and this is so subtle, but there may be ways that it gets what is your authenticity gets sort of like spun around as a kind of um, pressure. But tell me if that makes any sense or lands for you in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gets lost in translation so that if somebody, even if they have been divorced now for two years, they haven't, they're not ready to be in a serious, serious relationship just yet. And so they keep scrolling when they see that. That totally makes sense that maybe I need to really get some coaching on what, what my damn profile looks like. Um <laughs> But yeah, that, that does. Resonate. Well, I don't. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's a. Pro- I mean, I think it's a problem. I also I've struggled with this for a long time, because I think it's. I think we make this binary between like I'm just looking to mess around and I want a serious relationship. Like I think we make this strange binary, when in fact, somebody who says I'm interested in a serious relationship, what they're really saying is I'm interested in entering into a space with you. And playing with a full range of possibilities of where this might go, right? Because you have no idea, you know, you have no idea on the first date or even the third date or the fifth date where it's going to go. What you're saying when you say I'm available for a long-term relationship, you're not saying like, that's what I have to have with you if you swipe on me. But what you're saying is like, that's in the realm of the possible. Like that's something that I would be interested in having in the in the realm of the possible, but it's sort of a strange thing for us to be, for us to be saying, because, because there's so many steps that have to happen between swiping right and being in a long-term relationship. So it's a, it's a funny, there's like almost a funny like language thing that, that people are doing by making a binary between like, I'm dating just to date versus I'm dating because I am interested in a relationship. Yeah. Because it's not like, (laughs) Yes, let's have an arranged marriage. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's but it's it's putting out there what I'm actually looking for and it might be 3 6 months down the road of realizing okay, this isn't the person that I want to continue with and that's that's hard to spend 3 6 8 months to realize it's the wrong person and that's what I'm setting myself up for is what is it going to take to find that ha- happily ever after? Over those three, six, eight months, 
you know, it's not like, it's not like, um, I think we, we, we sort of, it feels like, um, it's not a relationship until we know it is a forever relationship. When in fact, it actually is a relationship, right? Those first three months are the beginning of a relationship that is a relationship, but it's really hard to invest, open, be vulnerable, not knowing the outcome. That's really, that's a hard ask. Yes, it is. And those are all the tools that I teach. And I get that whoever I'm in relationship with didn't sign up for the tools that I teach necessarily <laughs> in the long term, possibly. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's such a great point. So where where's the arena that exists with all of the conscious minded open, vulnerable people to get together and meet one another. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Where's that at? Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Let's go back now to talking about inequality with gender and how you said gender blocks intimacy, because that it, it sounds like you know a whole lot about that. And this idea of traditional versus non-traditional gender roles. So for somebody like myself, who I would consider very non-traditional and I can still own that because I was raised in a traditional home, my parents were never divorced. My father just recently passed away, but 58 years of marriage. So I have a lot of stuff I'll call inherited values that get in the way of maybe my non-traditional thinking. Wow. I mean, I just want to, well, first of all, I want to say that I'm sorry for your loss of your father. Um, and, and what a blessing, like what a, what a gift to have, um, to have, like have their marriage as an institution, really like something that you, that you knew your, you have known your entire life, like that you, um, I think it's a real privilege to grow up sort of taking your parents' marriage as, uh, as a, guarantee or as a capital T truth in the world, you know, there is something that is um, lovely about that. The commitment was lovely. They were very committed to one another as far as intimacy and understanding of relationships. There was definitely a block there and, and gender blocking intimacy. I, I completely understand what you're saying there. One of my favorite teachers, um, Terry real, um, says that patriarchy is built for stability, not intimacy. So a traditional marriage, a traditional marriage is, you know, a reflection of, um, of patriarchy, right? A sort of heavily role bound. He as the breadwinner and she is the homemaker. It's an incredibly stable arrangement. It's built to last. Um, it's role bound, but it's not built for intimacy. Intimacy is much more, dynamic, fluid. It has to be declared again and again and again. So if we are going to create intimacy, like it create an intimate partnership that is more like I always say, um, soul to soul rather than role to role, it does require this like introspection and willingness to like say who we are to each other, right? We, because we can't just, we can't just like um, plug and play, right? In a traditional marriage, you plug and play. You don't need to figure out who's going to, um, you know, whatever, like do all of the different tasks, whose job is in the front seat, 
who is in charge, you know, who takes the day off of work if the babies are sick. Like there's all these things in traditional marriage. You don't have to talk about them because it just, the, the, the structure dictates, right? The, the structure dictates who does what, when, and how. So the beauty of a non-traditional relationship where we transcend gender roles um, is that we get to come up with all of that ourselves. So we get to create something that is more true to who we are. The challenge is it's freaking exhausting and everything is up for negotiation. Everything can be a conversation. <laughs> right. And so intimacy is more than sexual. Intimacy is the the vulnerability to again and again and again have the conversations of whose role is this? Whose job is this? How do you feel about that? Et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, um, and it means that we are again and again, like kind of assessing, like, to what degree do I feel seen? To what degree do you feel seen? Whose needs are being met? Uh, I think it, you know, in, in a more egalitarian relationship, there's much more of a risk of scorekeeping. Scorekeeping is a symptom. You know, when, when we catch ourselves scorekeeping, it's, it just indicates that um, that we've got a scarcity mentality going and people are kind of looking out for themselves rather than being a bit more generous and um, having a more bountiful mentality. But those kinds of things, that's, those are all the, the side effects of having a more egalitarian relationship, which is what the vast majority of people, certainly that I'm working with and counseling and friends of mine and my own relationship, it's much, certainly much more the direction that we're heading. Yeah. And I would hope that the majority of the listeners that are listening to this conversation right now is, yeah, they, they want something different for their lives than what they've seen in, in the media, in their, in the traditional family structures. And, and I like what you're saying. So how, how much am I being seen and needs being met? But just the idea of a transactional relationship is is really selfish. Yeah, because there still does, you know, no matter no matter how people are navigating gender role stuff, a, a intimate relationship in order to be successful, the relationship has to become a third entity, right? There has to be a sense of we that that we like like a um, a sense of shared mission, purpose, direction, identity as a couple, that's really important to, for people to, to form. Like that's, that's what, you know, a, a good, strong, healthy, happy partnership has that sense of we. And so there is a bit of um, loss of self, right? There's a, or, or expansion of self. I mean, in the best case scenario, it doesn't feel like a loss of self. It feels like an expansion of self because part of me is expanding into the we, rather than like I'm losing myself or giving up myself. But that certainly is, um, is the, the tension that we sit with in relationship. The little bit of coaching I do with clients on relationships is I talk about like three different stages. One is kind of this selfish, what am I getting out of the relationship? The, the next level would be transactional. And then the third level is how much can I give? And if both partners are giving, then yes, you have this expansive, generative, relationship and that that would be hopefully be the goal yes i love that i love that um absolutely yeah. but i'm no relationship coach that's why i'm not 
I'm in. I'm in for that model. I love it. I'm I'm just curious where we go from here. I mean, I obviously know my trials and tribulations when it comes to relationships, but with the listeners right now, what I'm what I'm realizing in this conversation is for the last few years, I've been having deep conversations about gender and understanding for myself because I was I downloaded this binary growing up. And, and I love the conversation and how I can let go of, of this identity, identity of, of gender and it's more fluid. And if we're talking about a man and a woman coming together in a relationship, there's still so many unspoken things that have to do with gender and the ideas that we've downloaded throughout our life, as well as, as the culture. Do you have any, um, (laughs) I guess, gender breakdown 101 that we can follow here? So the first book that I wrote was called Loving Bravely. And it was, it's basically a primer on relational self-awareness. The idea of, uh, it's a, it's a process for understanding who you are in your intimate relationships, how your family story, how your gender story, how cultural messaging, like how all of that affects how we show up for relationship. And I finished that book and the publisher came back to me and they're like, so what do you want to write next? And I was like, oh, shoot, because I was so tired. <laughs> but I was also really clear about what I wanted to write next, which was a book about sex, which is a book about sexual self-awareness. All of the stuff we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes about gender plays out in the bedroom. And if we don't get it right uh, in the relationship, we're not going to get it right in the bedroom. If we don't get it right in the bedroom, we're not going to get it right in the relationship. Like this, it's, it's just mirroring. It just, the bedroom mirrors these larger patterns. And so, um, the, where do we go from here? I mean, some, like a, a large part of it, I think a large part of it started with the Me Too movement. I think that's a really important piece, like for, for us to, to really name and look at all of the ways in which violence against women has, has, has compromised, all of our well-being is a part of it, um, for sure. And we can't get anywhere good until we like slo- like look at all of the trauma and the violence and the pain. And we also are for sure needing to do better than just stopping hurt. We need to start talking about pleasure, right? And we're so far from that around how we educate our kids about sex and how we like what we make space for um, in the bedroom. Like there's, um, you know, all the research shows a significant orgasm gap, especially between men and women in the bedroom. And um, and women are just, you know, I think this has to do with patriarchal conditioning that, you know, sex is a duty. Sex is something that women are supposed to do for men. Um, and sex is very much talked about as something that is for men. Um, and we're, we're really at the very beginning stages of having even a field of science stud- that is studying female sexuality. Like we have been so, we've lacked such curiosity about female sexuality that there really hasn't even been scientific research about female sexuality and understanding women's bodies, understanding women's desire, understanding women's orgasms. Like that's all brand new. So it makes so much sense that couples struggle in the bedroom around it because it's, it's just something we have been, it's just been unspeakable. Um, so I think that is, so 
anyways, it's a long way of saying that part of like gender, you know, break it down 101 is talking about sex and, and figuring out how we get healthy around sex. Yeah. And I, and I love what you said. So I'll say it again, is that we not only talk about the ways that we've hurt people, but let's talk about the pleasure, how, you know, we gotta, we gotta talk about both. Yeah. Um, And I'm so thankful to be alive during this day and age (laughs) that with me to started a conversation that was long overdue. The historical wounds of women run so deep that, that we need to talk about all of that. But I love that you're talking about the other side of it too. Yeah. Let's talk about the hurt, but let's talk about the pleasure and that this is a whole new dawning of understanding. That's right. That's right. And so the second book, Taking Sexy Back, is really, you know, it is written because because I couldn't do justice to both male, you know, the the sexuality of those who've been socialized in the masculine and the sexuality of those who've been socialized in the feminine. I really focus on women's experiences around sex. And so it's a book about sexual self-awareness and the the primary reader is women. So it's, I'm, I'm writing about the experience of all the messages that we as girls and women internalize about who we're supposed to be, who we're not allowed to be, our relationship with our body, our relationship with God. You know, we sort of, we, we journey through these seven different realms in order to more deeply understand our sexual selves. And, um, but it's not just for, I, I love, I mean, the stories I've been able to hear about uh, men who read the book are really important because especially if you, you know, especially men who are sexually intimate with women, it's so important to understand the differences in our journeys and the differences potentially in our needs. And so when when a romantic relationship, you know, bridges that gender difference, it's so important to understand um, the differences in our experiences. And that's, you know, like that's the heart of empathy. So um, it's it's been really powerful to um take all of the stuff about self and relationship and like bring it into the bedroom and, and try to make sense of what happens, what happens there, because it's just all the, all the more vulnerable, right? I mean, love makes us feel so vulnerable and sex even more so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love this and now I'm really, you know, I wish I had read the book before we had this interview, but the idea of sexual self-awareness and I just think where's Where's the book that's written for men by a man around the same topic? Because I think that there's a lot of ego that comes into it with men as, of course, we're self-aware, but I don't know. I don't believe that men are. In fact, Mm -hmm. I think it's even more difficult for men to be vulnerable and have those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and around and around sexuality, because part of you know part of the messages that boys and men internalize is that is that men shouldn't have to ask for directions, right? Like that's the old stereotype that a man would never ask for directions. And so then in the bedroom, that's really um, that's a really unhelpful way to feel when it comes to sexuality. Because of course, like how how could any of us ever expect to make love with somebody else and know exactly what they're wanting and needing every step of the way. So, so to me, the greatest quality that anybody, I think, especially though a man, because it's, because this is how we socialize our men, the greatest quality for a man is, is to be curious, to, to bring curiosity into the bedroom and to be willing to be a student of 
one's partner rather than feeling like they have to take charge and take the lead and know, you know, give her an orgasm. We don't give each other orgasms. We create orgasms, you know, within ourselves in a space we get to share with the partner, I believe. So nobody's responsible for anybody else's um, pleasure, but we sure are responsible to each other, right? We are responsible to be curious, to be attuned. Um, and that's hard to do because when, you know, where the heck are we ever taught that? Most of us don't grow up in families where those are the conversations we have. School, certainly, sex education certainly does not <laughs> include emotional attunement and co-creation of pleasurable experiences. You know, what we, most of us learn in school is like, don't do it. You're going to die and your genitals are going to fall off. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> I I God, I love what you're saying and the idea of being curious every time. The the idea that I would have an understanding of where my partner is. I mean, each day is different. So how can I enter into any relationship, especially a sexual intimate relationship and be curious again and again and again? Ah, I really, I really like that. Mm -hmm. And that we develop together these mm -hmm. things. Yes. Yeah. All right. And see, now I'm all jazzed up. We're about 50 minutes in. And um, <laughs> how can we <laughs> recap this whole conversation for the listeners? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've, we've trapped, we've opened a bunch of boxes, right? Like we just sort of opened a bunch of boxes and looked inside, but yeah, I mean, any of these conversations, any of these topics could go on and on and on. I think that um, to me, what's most important is like, it's it's the sentence I used to start my, my TEDx talk, which was like, love is a classroom. And that's the through line, I think, in all of this is that we get to be and we have to be forever students of ourselves, of each other, of love, of sex, you know, that we don't, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have all the answers and, um, and that there's so much intimacy in the questions. Well done. The idea that we have to continually learn, be students and the intimacy is in the questions, in the learning, in the curiosity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Solomon, could you please let the listeners know how to get a hold of you and what services you provide? Yeah. Well, the easiest way to find me is on my website, which is um, dralexandrasolomon.com. And, you know, on the website is um, links to all of my social media. I'm, I'm really active on Instagram. It's been a really fun space for me to, to play in and, and to create content nearly, just about nearly every day. And I share that content on Facebook as well. So for those who aren't on Instagram, the content goes on Facebook. Um, and then also on the website, you know, the information about both of the books and, um, and also an e-course that we just, that, that we launched recently, which, which is, um, another way, you know, it's, it's not a redo of the, um, of the books, but it is a chance to learn a bit differently. Um, so it's, uh, six modules. It's self-paced. Um, there's lots of worksheets and handouts and um, engagement there within the course. And it's been a really, it's been really pretty special for me to have something like that, you know, out, out in the world. Nice. And all of that can be found at the website. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, thanks again so much for being here for this conversation. 
I feel like I've gained some wisdom and insight now into what's going on with me and some edits that I want to make to my own personal dating <laughs> platform. And I just really appreciate you being here and, and hopefully the listeners will gain some insight as well. So thanks again. It's, it's been so nice to be with you. I, um, you know, you bring, you bring just a, a patience and a gentleness and a, um, yeah, a, um, a, a curiosity to this conversation. I think that's such a, a wonderful quality in a podcaster and in a man. And so I, I think this has been, it's been great. So thank you so much for having me on. Yes, it's been my pleasure. Everyone, thanks again for listening to another episode of Embrace Growth. If you'd please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast, it lets other people find the show. Also, if you subscribe, you'll not miss out on any upcoming episodes. New episodes appear every Monday. That way you can start off your week in a really good way. Today's episode is brought to you by Leader Champions. Leader Champions offers one-on-one coaching. They offer online group coaching. There's personal growth work training. There's leadership training. And all of the coaches at Leader Champions are available to work with your group, organization, company, corporation, on whatever specific leadership needs you have. Just like Dr. Solomon said in this episode, she said that relationship is a classroom. I believe leadership is a classroom, that as leaders we need to constantly be looking at what does it mean to be a leader in this dynamic world, we're constantly changing, and Leader Champion stays on top of the transformational way of doing leadership, one way of being to another. So leaderchampions.com, check it all out, see how we can help you. We will see you next Monday, and until then, please embrace your own personal growth and support others to embrace theirs. Take care.